0: Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter 9, and of course, we are continuing our journey with Jesus through the gospel of Luke, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, this morning, uh, we looked at this passage of scripture dealing with the, an assessment on salvation and an assessment on discipleship, and tonight, we're going to pick up right where, where we left off. If you notice, we ended this morning, if you look at verse 26, the Bible says, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, for whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And, and again, I'm not, not going to re-preach this morning sermon, but I just want you to understand the context. We left off this morning sermon with this idea that we should live for God and that we should serve the Lord and be disciples uh, because of the benefits here on earth and also because of the benefits in heaven. We don't want to get to heaven and find out that we've been a castaway, that we've disqualified ourselves from rewards. We don't want to keep uh, make the Lord Jesus Christ ashamed of us is what the verse is saying here. And in that context, in verse 26, verse 27 is found. Now, verse 27, if you, if, if you really study it out, you'll... We didn't cover it this morning, but verse 27 is really in the context of verse 26. And uh, if you're d- dividing the scripture up into paragraphs, you'd find that verse 27 is part of verse 26, where, where he says, but I tell you of a truth, there'll be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, at verse 28, a new, we find a new transition, a new story. Notice there in verse 28, and it came to pass about eight days after these saying these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. Now, the reason that we did not cover verse 27 this morning, and I wanted to cover it tonight, is because although verse 27 is connected to the previous passage that we dealt with the, uh went through this morning, it really sets up what we're going to look at here in verse number 28. Because at the end of that little talk that Jesus gave, he makes this statement, this prediction, he says, but I tell you of a truth there be some standing here which shall not taste of death, meaning they're not going to die till they see the kingdom of God. And that statement there in Luke nine twenty-seven 27, it's not the only place that it's found in scripture, but that statement is often used by some to mock scripture uh, because Jesus is pretty much saying that there are some standing here referring to the 12. He says, that are not going to die before they see the kingdom of God. And people will often look at that phrase and say, Jesus was predicting that his kingdom, his coming kingdom, would happen within the lifetime of the disciples, and that did not happen. That makes him a liar. That makes him uh, a false. That's a false prediction. But I want you to understand that what Jesus actually said was that there were some standing here, which shall not taste of death. I do believe that's referring to the fact that they're not going to die till they, notice the word, the key word is see the kingdom of God, till they see the kingdom of God. And where you find this passage in, in the rest of the Gospels, you find consistently that in all the Gospels in which the Mount of Transfiguration is mentioned, I talked about on Wednesday night about the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, how they follow generally the same outline, not exactly, they've got some differences, but when the Mount of Transfiguration is mentioned in any gospel, it is always preceded by that statement that there will be some standing here which will not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And always within that context, we have the statement we find in verse 28 and it came to pass about an eight uh, uh, about an eight days after these sayings he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray now when Jesus goes up to that mountain We have a very well-known event in Scripture known as the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you're not sure what the Mount of Transfiguration is, we're going to study it tonight. We're going to look at it. But I want you to understand that the Mount of Transfiguration was that event that Jesus was referring to when He said that there are some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. He said there are some standing here referring specifically, we know from the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, to Peter, James, and John, which were not going to die till they had seen the kingdom of God, and they did see the kingdom of God on the mount of transfiguration, and that's the event that's happening here. So I just wanted to take a, a little bit of time to kind of explain that, because sometimes people will ask about that and say, well, what is that referring to, that there will be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God? That is a reference to the fact that there, are, there were men standing right there, Peter, James, and John, who Eight days later, six days later, a few days later, went up on the mount and they got a view of the coming kingdom of God. And that's really what the Mount of Transfiguration is. And if you're taking notes tonight, and I would encourage you, of course, always take notes on the back of your course of the week. I think you can write some things down. The first uh, point that I want to show you in regards to this is the revealing of the kingdom. The Mount of Transfiguration is a revealing of the coming kingdom. Now, there are several characteristics within the Mount of Transfiguration, and I'll just show these to you and and, and kind of study these out together tonight. When it comes to the revealing of the kingdom, the first reveal that we see is, of course, a glimpse of glory. Notice there in Luke 9, in verse 28, the Bible says, And it came to pass about in eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, here's the event of the Mount of Transfiguration, why it's called Transfiguration. The fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and, uh, and uh, glistering. The Bible tells us that Jesus on this mountain was transfigured or transformed into his glorified body, and Peter and John and James, they got a glimpse of the glory of God. They got a glimpse of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry on this mount. His fashion and his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and uh, glycerin. Now keep your place there in Luke chapter 9. That's our text for tonight. But go with me if you would to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Last book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. Revelation 1. and Look at verse 12. Revelation 1, 12, you'll notice that whenever we talk about Jesus in his glorified body, we always have these same types of descriptions. And there's multiple places in the Bible. I'm not going to take the time to have you run through all those, but I'll show you this one. In Revelation 1 and verse 12, the Bible says, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. This is, of course, John on the Isle of Patmos. And uh, he's, uh, he's on the aisle. He's praying. He's meditating. The Bible says, And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, this is after his ascension. This is a, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to John in his glorified body. Notice the description. Clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, and his uh, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength notice that the bible tells us his head was white his eyes were as a flame of fire his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength and when i saw him i fell at his feet as dead and he laid his right hand upon me saying unto me fear not i am the first and the last this is the same glorified jesus that peter james and john saw on the mount of transfiguration the word transfiguration is means trans uh uh, transformation is the same thing that's going to happen to you and I, when we are resurrected, this mortal will put on immortality, and um, this flesh and this corruption is going to put on incorruption. They saw the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory. Go back to Luke uh, chapter 9. Keep your place in Revelation if you would. We're going to come back to Revelation here in a minute, but go to Luke chapter 9. Notice what the Bible says. They saw, they got a, you say, what what are the characteristics of the Mount of Transfiguration, the revealing of the kingdom. Well, the first is that they got a glimpse of glory. They got to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ just for a minute. Notice there in Luke 9 and verse 30, the Bible says, and behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. We're gonna come back to those two verses here in a minute, but look at verse 32. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake... They saw His glory. Whose glory? The Lord Jesus Christ. They saw His glory and the two men that stood with Him. See... This is when Peter, James, and John, they got a glimpse of glory. They were on this mount. And here the Bible tells us that they were asleep. I believe that they were probably on this mount for several days. In fact, when you look at, and I won't take the time to run the verses, but when you look at the passages of the Mount of Transfiguration, some passages tell us they were up there for six days. Other passages tell us they were up there for eight days. People will often even look at that and try to point to the Bible and say, uh, you know, there's a contradiction here. What was it? Well, the fact that Peter, James, and John were asleep tells us that they were probably up there for six to eight days. They were probably up on the mount camping we're going to see that here in a minute they were up there uh, with the lord jesus christ they're dead asleep and they wake up and they see the lord jesus christ the bible they saw his glory and two men that stood with him by the way that's why john would later write in the gospel of john you know the verse very well and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father Full of grace and truth. This is a reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, We beheld his glory. We got a glimpse of glory. They went up on this mount and they got to see the coming kingdom, and the coming kingdom uh, showed them a glimpse of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the coming kingdom, Jesus will be in his glory, and so will you and I, if you're saved tonight. So we see a glimpse of glory, but I want you to notice there's a second characteristic to this Mount of Transfiguration, to the revealing of the kingdom. Not only do we see the glimpse of glory, but we also see the presence of the prophets. Notice there in verse 30 again, and behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias. And again, Elias is the New Testament spelling of the Old Testament name Elijah. There were two prophets that were present at this Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was transformed and transfigured into His glorified body, and Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of His glory, there were two prophets present. We see the presence of the prophets. There talked with Him two men, which were Moses and Elias. Notice verse 31. Who appeared in glory. They're also in their glorified bodies. And spake of His decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about this morning that in Luke, in chapter 9, we have this transition where the focus now for the Lord Jesus Christ is heading towards Calvary. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, we've got the Lord Jesus Christ in this glimpse of glory, in this transfiguration, in this transformed formation of his body into his glorified body. And Moses And Elijah, arguably the two um, most famous, most well-known, greatest Bible characters of the Old Testament, also appear in their glorified body, and guess what they take the time to talk about? The stock market. Is that what they talk about? The current political leaders, is that what they talk about? The things that you and I worry and are anxious about, is that what they thought? Like? No, you have this great meeting of these great biblical characters, and the Bible tells us that they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, I don't know where, what that conversation, how that went, and what exactly they were talking about, but this was the most important thing that they could talk about. They talked about the fact that it's getting near. It will happen soon, Jesus you're going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. So we see the glimpse of glory of our Savior, and we see the presence of the prophets. Notice there in verse 32, but Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. Who were these two men? Moses and Elijah. Now just real quickly, go go back to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11. And let me just say this, and this is not part of the sermon, but it's worth going on a little rabbit trail for it. In Revelation chapter 11, we are told about two witnesses that will come down to this earth during the end times, and it's often highly debated who these two witnesses are going to be. And the Bible doesn't tell us, so we shouldn't be dogmatic, but everybody has their little guesses about who the two witnesses would be. And I'll just give you mine, and again, I'm not dogmatic about it, this is just my opinion, but I believe that the two witnesses are going to be Moses and Elijah. Now, one of the reasons that I believe that is because of the fact uh, throughout the Bible, you'll notice that Moses and Elijah are connected together, and they are also connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, you know, here we see the fact that Moses and Elijah are the two men that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're also, and we'll talk about this later on in the sermon, they're also the, so when it comes to the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration, there was Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah, six individuals on that mountain. But when it comes to two individuals that are not the Lord Jesus Christ, that are on that mountain and are in their glorified bodies, those two individuals are Moses and Elijah. These two individuals also happen to be the same two individuals that along with the Lord Jesus Christ are the only individuals in the entire Bible who did a 40-day fast. Both Moses fasted for Moses and Elijah fasted for forty days. The Lord Jesus Christ fasted for forty days. Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Lord Jesus Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's other things we could talk about. Both went on journeys through the wilderness and met God on Mount Horeb. Both Moses and Elijah went through those similar journeys in their lifetimes. But here in Revelation chapter eleven, we have these two witnesses. Notice verse three: "And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days." Bathed in sackcloth, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeded out of their mouth and devoured their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. Now, in verse six, we're going to be told the two kind of the great miracles that these two witnesses do. And I just want you to notice and ask yourself, what do these miracles remind you of? Revelation eleven verse six. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Doesn't that sound like Elijah? Yeah. Elijah, during his ministry, prayed and shut heaven that it would not rain during his ministry. Notice, so these, uh, they, they have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. And here's the other miracle that they can perform. Have power over waters to turn them to blood. Doesn't that sound like Moses? and to smite the earth with plagues. Doesn't that sound like Moses? As often as they will. So we've got Moses and Elijah, two men other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who, uh, who did 40-day fast. Moses and Elijah, two men other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who were glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, two men who wandered through the wilderness and walked up Mount Horeb and met uh, uh, God there. And then when we're told about the two witnesses in Revelation eleven three, they also are, just happen to match the major events that Moses and Elijah did, shut heaven, that it rained not in the days of the prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite uh, the earth with all plagues. So my educated guess is that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. You can disagree with me. Of course, you have every right to be wrong. But I think I think that Moses and Elijah are probably the two witnesses, and that's why they're honored with being up uh, on the mount. But it's not just that. Go back to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're talking about the revealing of the kingdom, the mount of transfiguration. The whole purpose of this mount, transfiguration, is that... Peter, James, and John might see the kingdom. We see that they get a glimpse of glory. They see the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured in His glorified body. And then, of course, uh, uh, Moses and Elijah are there as well in their glorified bodies. And then we have Peter, James, and John are there. But the Bible also tells us that as they were up on this mountain, down below were the rest of the disciples, excuse me, ministering to the people down on the bottom of the mountain. We're going to see that later on in, in the passage. We read it at the beginning of the text. So they go down off the mountain to deal with the multitudes down there and to cast out devils and to deal with those things. So when we talk about the revealing of the kingdom, the fact that they're going to see the kingdom, all of these individuals that are portrayed here in the mountain Are a representation of the coming kingdom, of the coming reign. They are a representation of the coming reign, referring to the coming kingdom of God. So we see a glimpse of the glory, we see the presence of the prophets, and we also see a representation of the coming reign a representation of the coming reign. You say, what is that representation? Let me just break it down for you. And again, if you're into these kind of things and you like these allegory type things, maybe you can write this down. How does the Mount of Transfiguration, how is it that it could be said that Peter, James, and John saw the kingdom of God upon the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, the Mount of Transfiguration represents the coming reign of Christ. When you think about the Mount of Transfiguration, here are the players that are Uh, portrayed and what they represent number one you have jesus of course jesus represents himself in the coming kingdom that's why he was transfigured into his glorified body because in the coming kingdom he will rule with a rod of iron in his glorified body so we have jesus representing himself in the coming kingdom as himself transfigured in his glorified body but then we have moses who does moses represent Moses represents believers who died before the coming of Christ. These would be what we call Old Testament saints. Because if you remember, Moses died. Obviously, Moses died in the Old Testament. And his death was... was uh, uh, pretty well known and even, uh, even there, there was drama that came as a result of his death. You don't have to turn here. I'll just read this for you. Jude nine says this, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuked thee. So here we're told that Michael the archangel was contending with the devil. They were fighting about the body of Moses. They were disputing over the body of Moses. And of course, we know that God is the one who took the life of Moses. Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land to cross over and he went up the mount he met God there. God took his life and buried him. And nobody knew where Moses was buried, but the devil and, and Michael the archangel were disputing over the body of Moses. So Moses definitely died. And in this little picture here, we have Jesus who represents himself in his glorified body, the, the coming Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lord, uh, the, the Lord of glory. And then we have Moses who represents believers who died before the coming of Christ, Old Testament saints who died, uh, uh, excuse me, Old Testament and also. So Moses represents New Testament saints. anyone that died before the rapture. You say, what about Elijah? Well, Elijah represents those who were raptured up. Because if you remember, one of the main characteristics and well-known things about Elijah is that he was caught up. 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11. You don't have to turn, I'll just read this for you. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Moses represents believers who died before the coming of Christ or the, the rapture. And then Elijah actually is a picture, a representation of those who get raptured up. Because Elijah never died. He was caught up into heaven. A chariot of fire came down, and the Bible says that he was caught up by a whirlwind into heaven. So he actually pictures uh, the believers that get raptured from this earth. You say, what about Peter, James, and John? What do they represent? They represent believers who are still in their mortal bodies during the millennial reign. Because during the millennial reign, what we're going to have is the Lord Jesus Christ reigning as King of kings, Lord of lords. We're going to have uh, a saint in their glorified body, who were resurrected, uh, uh, that, did not, that died and were resurrected from the dead. They're going to be at the millennial reign. But we're also going to have saints who were raptured. And we have these representations. But during that millennial reign, there's also going to be... And again, I don't have time to go into all these details. I'm not preaching on, on, on end times prophecy tonight. But during the millennial reign, there's going to be people that are born during that thousand-year reign of Christ who are going to believe on Christ, who are going to get saved, and they're going to be believers that live during the millennial reign. And you say, what happens to them when they die? At the end of the millennial reign, there's, an, there's another resurrection for them. And Peter, James, and John represents the believers who are alive during the reign of Christ. And then you've got the people down at the bottom of the mount, the multitudes. Who do they represent? They represent the unbelievers during the millennial reign. Because in the same way that there's going to be saved people during the millennial reign, there's also going to be unsaved people during the millennial reign. And we know that because at the end of the millennial reign, uh, Satan is loose from the bottomless pit and he comes out and he gathers the armies to fight against God, the nations of Gog and Magog which are a bunch of unsaved people. So see, on this Mount of Transfiguration, we've got this picture of what the millennial reign is going to look like. We have the Lord Jesus Christ and His glorified body. We have saints who died before the rapture. We have saints uh, represented by Moses. We have saints who were raptured at the the, uh, rapture of the the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, at the coming of Christ. And they're represented by Elijah. You have Peter, James, and John who represent believers that are still alive during the millennial reign and that got saved or were born after the rapture. And then you've got at the bottom the multitudes of unbelievers who are also going to be at the millennial reign, and they're going to be the nations of Gog and Magog that go to battle uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have this representation of the reign. This is why Jesus said, there are some standing here which will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God. And they did see the kingdom of God in this picture of the Mount of Transfiguration. Go back to, I don't know where you're at, but go to Luke chapter 9 if you would. Luke chapter 9. Hopefully that made sense to you. But we have here the revealing of the kingdom. And then I want you to notice, secondly, not only do we have the revealing of the kingdom, the glimpse of glory, the presence of the prophets, the representation of the rain, but we have, number two tonight, the record of the Father. There's another event that happens at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, the purpose of the Mount of Transfiguration was the revealing of the kingdom. But while this event happens, Peter, and we love Peter, does what Peter often does, and he puts his foot in his mouth. And as a result, we not only get the revealing of the kingdom, we also get the record of the Father. Notice there in verse 33. What does Peter do? Peter equates Jesus to Moses and Elijah. Notice verse 33. If you don't really, you know, you might read this and think, I don't understand what Peter did that was so bad. But when you, when you understand that he's equating Jesus, Luke 9, and it came to pass as they, referring to Moses and Elijah, departed from him, Jesus. So they're done talking and Moses and Elijah are, are departing. They're leaving Jesus. Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. He says, and let us make three tabernacles. What's a tabernacle? A tabernacle is a tent. He says, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, or Elijah. Notice, I like how Luke puts this little phrase here at the end of verse three, not knowing what he said. So here, Peter says, hey, this is great. Moses and Elijah are here. And, and he, he throws out this request. He says, how about we build three tabernacles? How about we put up three tents, one for thee, one for Moses, One for Elias, one for Elijah. And when he does this, what he does is he equates Jesus to Moses and Elijah. He puts them on the same level. Go to Mark chapter 9. Let me show this to you in another passage. Mark chapter 9. You're there in Luke. Just flip back to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Remember in Luke 9.33, Luke put this little phrase in. He said, not knowing what he said, right? Right? Peter is just, he says, hey, let's make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, not knowing what he said. In Luke 9, verse 5, the Bible says this, And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. Notice Luke 9, 6. Notice how Mark put it. He says, For he wist not, the word wist means to know or knew. He wist not, he knew not what to say. So in Luke 9.33, we're told that he said this not knowing what he said. And in Mark 9.6, we're told he said this not knowing what to say. And here's just an application for you. When you don't know what to say, sometimes it's best to say nothing at all. Because yeah. here Peter is like, you know, this is great. I, I, I want to say something. But this gets documented in Scripture for all of eternity. Not knowing what to say, for he wist not what to say. He put his foot in his mouth. And the problem was that he equated Jesus to Moses and Elijah. So he puts Jesus and Moses. It's not like he says, hey, how about we make a tabernacle for Jesus and Moses and Elijah can sleep under the stars like Peter, James, and John are doing. No, he says, hey, let's build three tabernacles for these three men. And he equates them. You got to understand that that's the problem with Peter's statement because then we get the record of the father. Notice Luke 9 and verse 34. While he, Peter, thus spake. I I love that. Because as Peter is saying these words, hey, we should make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared, notice these words, as they entered into the cloud. I mean, think about that. Sometimes you got to put yourself in these stories. They're up on this mountain. They've been there for a couple of days, probably. They've been, they're, they're, they're asleep, Peter, James, and John. They, they, they wake up because this light kind of wakes them up. They open their eyes, and they see the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured in His glorified body, uh, uh moses and elijah in their glorified bodies talking about the fact that jesus is going to die they just sit there and watch this glimpse of glory and when elijah and moses go to leave peter says hey wait a minute it, this is great it's good for us to be here let's make three tabernacles one for moses one for elijah one for jesus and as he's saying these words this cloud comes in this fearful cloud Notice again, verse 34. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them and they feared as they entered into the cloud. I mean, just imagine this cloud coming into the mountain. They're like, what in the world? Verse 35. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. You say, what was the record of the Father? The record of the Father was this. God the Father expressed the preeminence of Jesus over Moses. The preeminence of Jesus over Elijah. The preeminence of Jesus over everyone else. Because here you have Peter who knew, he didn't know what to say. So he's just going to say something. And he equates, he equates Jesus to Moses and Elijah. And, and God the Father brings his cloud in and he speaks from the cloud and he says, No this is my beloved son, hear him. And of course, this is not the first time this happened when a voice came from heaven. Of course, at the baptism of, of Christ, the Bible tells us, that, lo, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well placed. And of course, the father uh, shows us his, uh, his express uh, 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 approval on the preeminence of Jesus. And look, let's not forget and let's never get this attitude that Jesus is like anyone else in the Bible. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not a, a good man. No, it's the preeminence of Christ above everyone. That's why one of the themes I love about the book of Hebrews, where Hebrews tells us that Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than everyone. Why? It's the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter equates Jesus to Moses and Elijah, and God the Father expresses the preeminence of Jesus over everyone else. And then I love this. Because the cloud comes in, it's foggy. They can't see. They just hear a voice. This is my beloved son. Hear him. You don't need Moses and Elijah. Is what he's saying. He says, you've got Jesus. And then I love the way it's worded in verse 36. And when the voice was passed, when the voice was passed and the, uh, the cloud cleared, notice these words, Jesus was found alone. I love that. Hey, praise God. Jesus was found alone. You say, why? Because he's all I need. Jesus Christ has made to me all I need, all I need. He alone is all my plea. He is all I need. I don't need anyone else. I don't need anything else. I've got Jesus. And God says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Go to Ephesians just real quickly. Let me just run a couple of verses with you. Ephesians chapter 1, you're there in Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, you know what you and I need? We need to recapture the preeminence of Christ in our lives. Jesus is all I need. I don't need anything else. And when I have Jesus, He's all I want. Ephesians 1 and verse 20. Ephesians 1 and verse 20, don't ever forget the preeminence of Christ above everything. That in all things he might have the preeminence. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, the Bible says. Ephesians 1 and verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Notice verse 21, far above all. I love how it says that. Not just above all, no, 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 not just above all, far above all. Far above all principalities, far above all power far above all might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. you understand why God the Father was a little frustrated when Peter says, hey, you know, I think Jesus and uh, Moses and Elijah, they're kind of equal. Let's give them all three tabernacles. And God the Father feels the need to come in and say, no, this is my beloved son. Hear him. He's far above all principalities and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Keep your place there in Ephesians. Go back to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. So notice we see the revealing of the kingdom. What was it? A glimpse of glory, the presence of the prophets, the representation of the reign. We saw number two, the record of the Father. Peter equates Jesus to Moses and Elijah, and God the Father expresses the preeminence of Jesus over Moses, over Elijah, and over everyone else. And then I'd like you to notice thirdly tonight, the reality of their current state. See, we saw the revealing of the coming kingdom, and we saw the record of the Father But when this event, the Mount of Transfiguration, is over, the reality of their current state begins to settle in. You ever got on a vacation and got a little down when you came home? Like, ah, it's over. You know, back to the real world. Well, Peter gets a little bit of that. Notice Luke chapter 9 and verse 33. And it came to pass, as they, Moses and Elijah, departed from him, Jesus, Peter said, notice what Peter said. And this is why Peter puts his foot in his mouth because he says, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. But here's why he said it. He said it because he didn't want it to end. Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here let, and let us make three tabernacles. Now, he shouldn't have said it because he shouldn't have equated Jesus to Moses and Elijah, but he said it because he was having such a good time because it was such a a, a a great stay up on the mount. He did not want it to end. And look, I can understand that. You're there in Ephesians. Go to Philippians. Peter was having such a good time up on the mount. He didn't want to go home. Peter was having such a good time. He said, "Let's just stay here for a while. Let's just build some tabernacles." Let's build a fire. Let's get some s'mores going. Let's just, let's just do this. What was it that Peter loved so much? Peter, for a moment, got to live in the coming kingdom. Really, he got to live in what you and I would refer to as the afterlife or heaven, even though the kingdom of God, we understand there's a lot of different things there. But Peter was out of his real-life world for a little bit, and he loved it. Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. I don't want to go home. Can we just stay here? And I understand that. Sometimes you don't want to go home. Or maybe you should put it this way. Sometimes you want to go home, and you don't want to be here. We sing that song, Heaven Sounding Sweeter, all the time. And sometimes the longer you live and the older you get, heaven really is sounding sweeter all the time. Notice there in Philippians 1 and verse 23, notice this is how Paul said it. He said, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart, Paul said. Paul said, Sometimes I don't, I don't want to do this life anymore. Sometimes I, I just like to go home. He said, he said I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to, uh, and to be with Christ, which is far better. But then Paul says, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. See, Peter said, Let's just do this for a while. I like this. This is great. And for Peter, this was quite what we might refer to as the mountaintop experience. Real quickly, go to 2 Peter if you would. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you start at Revelation and go backwards, you have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter. If I'm going to preach a sermon on the mount of transfiguration, we have to go to 2 Peter. Because in 2 Peter, we have the epistle of the apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he talks to us about the mount of transfiguration, about this event that he had up on this mountain with the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 and verse 16. Notice what Peter says. For we have not followed cunningly. The word cunning means deceitful or sly. We have not followed cunningly devised. The word devised means planned out. He says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. A fable is a made-up story. He said, what we followed was not cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. His majesty referring to his glory. Majesty is a term used for kingdoms. Peter said, I saw the coming kingdom. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. I was an eyewitness of the coming kingdom. You ask Peter, who was there? What's the coming kingdom look like? He said, well, it looks like Jesus in his glorified body. It looks like a bunch of saints, Old Testament and New Testament saints that died before the rapture. It looks like a bunch of uh, saints that died, that that never died, that were raptured up. It looks like a bunch of uh, 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 mortals that got saved during the millennial reign and a bunch of unsaved mortals that did not get saved during the millennial reign. He's like, that's what I saw. I was an eyewitness of his majesty. Look at verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the, uh, from the excellent glory. Peter says, I was there when Jesus received from God the Father honor and glory. When did Jesus receive honor and glory? When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. When a voice came and told us, Something about Jesus. Now, I, I like, and I understand this, I like how Peter leaves out the, the, the part where the reason that this voice that God the Father spoke is because he put his foot in his mouth. You know, I probably would have left that out too. But, but he said, look, there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were, hit, when we were with him in the holy mount referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. So look, I don't blame Peter. I, you know, he, he said what he said, and, you know, I, I don't know, you and I might have said something even stupider. But I don't blame Peter because he was having a good time. He's like, I don't want to go home. I want to stay here. I want to stay here with you, Jesus, here in the kingdom. I want to uh, talk to Elijah. I want to talk to Moses. I want to stay up on this Mount. See, Peter was having, he wanted to stay on the mount because he was having quite a mountaintop experience. But did you know that you and I can have a little mountaintop experience here on earth? Right. Because in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16, 17, and 18... Peter tells us about this experience on the Mount of Transfiguration in which he said, it is good for us to be here. I don't want to go home. But then in verse 19, Peter makes this application. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. And Peter said, look, I was up on that mountain. Uh, The cloud came in. I heard the voice. I saw the glory. I was up there. But he said, you know what? I was up there. And then he compares that to the word of God. And he says, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. You know that you can get up every day, every day. Tomorrow morning, you can get up and open your King James Bible and read it and have a mountaintop experience with God. Amen. Tomorrow, you can open your Bible and pray this prayer, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And read the Word of God and feel the Spirit of God and have the morning star arise in your heart. You can have a, more, a mountaintop experience tomorrow morning. Tonight, before you go to bed. Moses, uh, Moses was up there, but Moses is here. Elijah was up there, but Elijah is here. Jesus was up there. This is Jesus. Amen. The Word of God. Peter wanted to stay on the mount. It was quite the experience, but you and I can have a mountaintop experience too. We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn, and the day star rise in your heart. Sometimes we're cold and dark towards the things of God. You just open up that Bible and get you a mountaintop experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wanted to stay up there. I don't blame him. I would have wanted to stay up there too. But the problem was, that Peter could not stay up there because there was work to be done. Go back to Luke chapter 9. The reason that they only got to see the kingdom is because the kingdom has not yet come. It's coming. You know the day is coming when you will be in your glorified body, I will be in my glorified body, we will be serving the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified body, and there'll be no tears, there'll be no pain, There'll be no disappointment. There'll be no death. There'll be no trials. There'll be no persecution. There'll be no, the the things that weigh heavy on our hearts. We won't have to deal with that one day. But that's not today. You understand that? See, you know what the Bible tells us about the millennial reign? The Bible tells us about the millennial reign that the lion will lay with the lamb. That the bear will lay with uh, the, the ox. That, that children will play with serpents, and, and they'll play with venomous snakes, and, and, they, and they won't get uh, bitten, and there'll be no poison. See, there's coming a day when you'll be able to pet a lion, when you'll be able to pet a bear, when you'll be able to pick up a snake, and you won't get bit. There's coming a day, it's called the millennial reign of Christ. But let me tell you something, that day is not today, and if you pick up a snake called the devil today, you're going to get bit. You're going to get poisoned. Peter wanted to stay up on the mountain, but that was not the day. There was work that still needed to be done. There was devils that still needed to be cast out. Luke chapter 9, verse 37. And it came to pass that on the next day, when they were come down from the hill. What hill? The Mount of Transfiguration, this great experience. Notice what the Bible says. Much people met him. Peter wanted to stay up on the mountain, but there was people down on the, at the bottom of the mountain that needed their help. Verse 38, and behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son, for, for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit take of him. He has a child here that's demon-possessed. A spirit taketh them and he suddenly crieth out and it teareth him that he foameth again and bruising him hardly departeth from him. Notice the problem. Verse 40. This father comes with this broken heart. He sees Jesus coming down off the mountain. He says, says, please help my only child. He's demon possessed. The spirit takes him and he cries out and he tears him and he's foaming at the mouth. He's bruising him. Notice what he says in verse 40. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, notice these words, and they could not. Because remember, the only disciples that were up on the mount were Peter, James, and John. The rest of the disciples were still at the bottom of the mount, still ministering, still preaching, still healing, Still casting out devils, I would remind you that we already saw the sending of the twelve, where God, uh, where Jesus ordained the twelve and empowered them to be able to cast out devils, to be able to heal the sick, to be able to preach the kingdom of God. They'd already cast out devils, but on this particular occasion, the Bible says that there was a certain demon that they could not, they could not cast out. Notice, verse forty-one. And Jesus answering said, actually, before I read that, go, go, go to Matthew real quickly. you're there in Luke, just flip over to Matthew 17. In Matthew 17, we have the same story. I won't take the time to read all the passages, but look at verse 21. When, when, when Jesus comes down, he says, hey, your disciples, you know, they've been casting out devils, but my son has this one devil, and they could not cast out that devil. In Matthew 17 and verse 21, here's what Jesus says about the problem. He says, how be it this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. See, there was a certain devil, Jesus said, that the disciples, though they cast out other devils, there was a certain devil that they needed to up their game with. He said, this kind, this kind, goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. They had to up their game. Go back to Luke chapter 9, look at verse 41. And Jesus answering said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. And as he was yet coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples. And he goes on to give them some instructions and we'll deal with that next week. But let me just say this. Here we have this illustration where they're up on the mountain and the multitudes are down at the bottom. The disciples that did not go up to the mountain have already cast out devils down at the bottom. But this kind, but this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. And just by way of conclusion tonight, I just want to make this application That oftentimes in the Christian life, look, you and I in the Christian life cannot just stay the same. There is no such thing as staying the same. You're either growing and expanding higher ground or you're backsliding. There's no in between. And the truth is this, you maybe have heard this little phrase before, higher levels bring greater devils. Sometimes what we need is to draw closer to God. See, the Mount of Transfiguration represented a few things. Now, I showed you what it represented in regards to the kingdom, but in a very practical explication, the Mount of Transfiguration represented time with the Word of God because they went up there with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. That's what Peter, that's what John is referring to, is the Mount of Transfiguration. He said we have a more sure word of prophecy, So the Mount of Transfiguration represents what? Going up on the Mount and getting alone with the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it represents more than that. It also represents going up on the mountain and spending time in prayer. Because that's what they were doing up there. Remember Luke 9, look at verse 28? And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. That's why they went up there. Verse 29, and as he prayed... So look, the Mount of Transfiguration represents this, going up there and spending time with the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, going up there and spending time in prayer, and it also represents uh, spending time in fasting. Because again, you think it's a coincidence that Jesus comes down and says in Matthew, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting when he just went on a mountain to pray and when he met up there with the two other Bible characters who had 40-day fasts? You say, what does the Mount of Transfiguration represent? It represents our devotional time with the Lord. The time that we spend in the Word of God, in prayer, and um, also in fasting. And what's interesting is this, and this is just kind of a a concluding thought. In your life and in my life, we, we have two different sides to our life. We have our private lives and our personal lives, our, our, per, our private lives and our public lives. You have your private life that nobody knows or just your family knows. And then you have your public life, what everybody else sees. But what Jesus is teaching us is this, that your ability to succeed in your public life, your ability to beat devils, to, 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 to grow, to win spiritual battles in your public life is directly influenced by your private life. See, your ability to come down the mountain and cast out devils, higher devils, greater levels, this kind which goeth not out but by prayer and fasting, that ability is directly influenced by the amount of time that you spent up on the mountain with the word of God, and in prayer, and in fasting. Your public life is influenced by your private life. So here's the question for you. How's your devotional life? When's the last time you had a mountaintop experience? When's the last time you took some time to get away? You took some time to get away. I'm not saying you have to go up on a mountain, but you turn the stinking phone off. And you got you a King James Bible and you went alone somewhere and you spent some time in the word of God and you spend some time in prayer, you spend some time maybe fasting, you got a hold of God and got the power of God, it will show in your public life. And by the way, the lack of private time with God will also show in your public life. So you might want to take time to get alone with God because you can have mountaintop experience just like Peter. We have a more sure word of prophecy. You've got it in your hand. Amen. Read it. Spend time with it. Spend time in prayer. Maybe even fast. I realize there are some reasons why you may not want to fast or may be able to fast if you're pregnant or have some sort of a, 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 a reason why medically why you can't. But if you're able to, you, you, should, you should try it. Spend time with God. Get away with God is a major lesson in this passage. Let's bow our heads and have a word of Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the story. Of course, this Mount of Transfiguration, so much that could be said, so many things that we could learn and read from it. Uh, Lord, I pray you'd help us to understand it. Help us understand the the actual representation of the kingdom, and Lord, also help us to understand the application of getting alone with God. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.